Hey, welcome back to another episode of Parker's Pensies. I'm your host, Parker Case, and this is a podcast where we explore all the deepest ideas in philosophy, theology, nature, and life. I love thinking about cool stuff, so come think with me. Today's episode is going to be another installment in theology. I'm really excited for this. I have with me Dr. Austin Freeman. We're going to be talking about his new book, Tolkien Dogmatics, Theology Through Mythology with the Maker of Middle-Earth. It's awesome. I'm really stoked to talk about it. We're not going to cover everything because it's huge and we couldn't do all of that. So if you are pumped about this book and the stuff that we're talking about, you need to go grab it. And if you use the link in my description, it'll also support the podcast. So that's my affiliate link. So go ahead and do that. <clears throat> uh, before we jump in, though, I want to thank everyone who is making this podcast happen. If you've benefited from this podcast, uh, please consider becoming a Patreon patron. That would be huge. You can support for as little as $3 a month, all the way up to 100 I believe. So, man, if you like this, if you if this gives value, if this provides value to you, not to your life, because other things give your life value. If you like this podcast, please consider supporting it so that I can continue to have internet access and pay for that. That would be awesome. Another way to support it is uh, sharing this podcast with a friend who likes Tolkien. You can like and leave your comments. Maybe uh, Dr. Freeman will come back and see those, so be nice. But, uh, yeah, you can be critical, I guess. So there's a lot of ways to support the pod. Please do so if you like this. Without further ado, though, let's bring in Dr. Austin Freeman and talk about Tolkien dogmatics. <clears throat> oh, hello, hello. Yeah. <laughs> That's, oh, so today. Yeah. That's so great. Were you already wearing this before? Oh, I mean, it's just it's what people expect, right? When yes. When you on, on Tolkien. That's you right. So I've just recently um, actually, like, I know you're, you're saying that, but that's true. Like, I've actually come to um, the belief that I should start dressing like a professor when I give talks and stuff like that, when I present papers or give apologetics talks, because it, it helps the uh, the ambiance. Like, people are, are expecting that. And if I can help them get in the right state of mind just by dressing a certain way, then let's do that. Yeah, I'm stoked for that. I lost you there for a second. <clears throat> Uh, yeah, well, yeah, yeah. It, it's, it's interesting you should say that. I, I teach at a classical school, and it's it's a long-standing debate as to why the students need to wear uniforms. And I tell them every time that it, the way that you dress affects the way that you think. Uh, so, yeah, I'm an advocate for that. That's awesome. I I was totally not into that before, um, and and as I'm studying more and more philosophy. I don't know, man. The philosophers are like, eh, whatever, I'm, I'm wearing this. And all the theologians that I'm coming from are like, tweed jacket, of course I'm going to do that. So I was at ETS. Yeah. yeah. And I was at ETS and, and like people were, were kind of giving me a, a, were teasing me for wearing like a bow tie and stuff. And I'm like, dude, I'm coming from theology. Like this is totally normal over there. That's right. Yeah, that's right. I love that. Well, uh, awesome, man. Can you tell us a little bit about your uh, your theological background? Like, where where did you do your PhD at? Sure, sure. Uh, I did my PhD at the very place that you're sitting right now, Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. Yeah, let's, go. let's go. Let's go. Let's um, go. I'm actually not there anymore, but I, I uh, I'm very close by okay. in an undisclosed uh, location. Um, so the the locale. So we um, yeah. yeah we were there for four years. I did my PhD in systematic theology under. Uh, the great, the legendary, the mythic Kevin Ben Hooser. The Who's. Yep. The man. And uh, so I, I did my dissertation on a theological paradox, which is sort of a, mm. uh, an interdisciplinary PhD dealing with knowledge of God and divine mystery and, and uh, language and all sorts of things. Um, but as many people do, uh, I also had other research interests at the same time. And uh, I started working on this book while I was still in the PhD. And uh, that's where 
everybody seemed to want to hear me talk uh, was about Tolkien and, and uh, Lovecraft and literature and that sort of stuff. So that's what I have continued on to do since graduation. And I'm, I've shifted over into uh, theology and literature and theology and the arts more broadly. So uh, I teach at Houston Christian University, no longer Houston Baptist University. I, I do a lot of oh, okay. the apologetics department uh, dealing with great texts and things like that. And that's awesome. Uh, in the, in the, the, you piqued my interest with the paradox stuff. I mean, did, did you mess with uh, like James Anderson stuff at all? Did you, yeah, did yeah. you look into that? Okay. Did you, what, what, can you give us like a, a summary? Like where, where do you come down? Like, do you think there is a paradox and we justified in believing? Uh, so I, I, at the beginning, I articulate that I will adopt Anderson's definition of paradox as uh, merely apparent cool. contradiction. Uh, I actually just emailed him uh, like a week yeah. ago uh, and, uh, and J.V. Fesco because there's a, there's a sort of a, a bevy of approaches within the Vantillian sphere. I'm not a Vantillian, but it seems like that's yeah. all the paradox people are talking. Um, and some of the stuff that the Vantillians do, like Brant Bosserman, uh, I was mm-hmm. very, very much against and, <laughs> and like like stridently against and um but but anderson's approach i think is a lot more healthy and actually retains the ability to you know support the laws of logic and things like that um sure yeah so i i I came down on the fact that paradox is a result of um passing over that creator creature distinction right in theology we're passing back and forth along this line that separates the creature and the creator and so we have different forms of knowledge and and tolkien will actually talk about this in, in some of his writings is that English is one of the rare languages that doesn't have two different forms for knowing, uh, separating between personal and yeah. factual knowledge. Um, so yeah, it used to, which is uh, preserved in the English word wit. Uh, so if someone says to wit or that somebody is witty, that is the the leftover, the vestigial uh, form of the English wissen from the, you know, the German wissen versus kennen. Wow. Okay. Uh, Dude, I did not know that. Kenan is that like v- vision shaft too? Yeah. Like vision? Okay. Yeah, so Kenan becomes no and Vissen becomes wit and then um, wit drops away. So uh, one of the things I think oh. English theology in particular gets into issues with is the failure to distinguish between knowing a person and knowing a fact. This Friday, your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. It's time to greet your team, Riley. It's anger. Let me at him. Fear. Safety checklist is complete. Disgust. Ew, ew. Ugh. anxiety. I'm one of Riley's new emotions. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. There's a part two? We're going! Ready PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only in theaters Friday. Get tickets now. Yeah. And so I, I say that it, in theology, it's presupposed that we can know God and we, we know God through union with Christ and through the illumination of the spirit. So we're united with God uh, in, in one form of knowledge. But there's a whole different set of rules when we talk about articulating the things that we know when we know a person. Uh, and that's where the, the weird sort of paradox comes in. Yeah, dang, that's so good. Yeah, like knowledge attribution. And I, yeah, I'm in an epistemology class right now. And uh, this guy, Matthew Benton, this philosopher, he, he makes this clear distinction. And he, he still motivates it through, um, he says, you know, we still do have these concepts of personal knowledge, interpersonal knowledge, knowledge of facts. Um, they just come out. So he gives like different uh, instances of of sentences where that where that can be true. And it's funny because we have to do that. Like you said, we don't have the words for it anymore. So you have to look at different uh, sentences and say like, well, look, he's he's saying he knows that. But you wouldn't say I know that Parker. You'd say I know Parker. Yeah. And so 
that's fun, man. That's so cool. I'll have to, you got to send me your dissertation. That'd be really fun. Is there uh, yeah, any, so I, I came down, to a book I, I proposed or? to use the term familiarity instead of knowledge. Term, um, and it has the core of that family in there. We're part mm. of God's economy, God's works. Um, so that, that was my uh, yeah. little contribution to that. But uh, yeah, I can send it to you if you want. But as, as I said, I haven't really touched it in about, uh, in about five years. I've been doing other stuff like, uh, like writing this thing. Yeah, seriously. Yeah. Well, I mean, let, um, yeah, do that, please. Uh, let's jump in on this then. So um, uh, this is, let me, let me give you a really easy one. Was Tolkien a theologian? <sighs> Tolkien is a theologian in the sense that everybody is a theologian. And in the sense that everybody okay. has a, a more or less ordered way of thinking about God. And yeah. Tolkien is more conscious of that than probably most people uh, who are reading Lord of the Rings just for, for uh, fictional fun time. Um, I mean, he's a, yeah. a tier one intellectual at the premier university in the world. And at a time when scholarship is, is really still um, at, at the highest level. And so he, despite being a, an English professor and a professor of languages, um, was just very invested in his own faith and in making links between different elements of his life. And so he, he was engaged in very many theological conversations with other people who we would consider to be um, professional theologians, such as Austin Ferrer or um, uh, other priests and, and scholars at the, the Birmingham Oratory. Uh, the inklings we know from letters from, from Warney Lewis, C.S. Lewis's brother, a lot of times people would think that they were being quite rowdy, but really they're just debating theology. Uh, so we know that that's a, a constant sort of familiar element in Tolkien's conversations with C.S. Lewis and, and his other friends. Uh, so yes, I would say Tolkien is a theologian, but Tolkien would also very firmly say that he is a lay theologian uh, and that he is not professionally trained. Um, he's got that mastery of British understatement so that he always hedges when he talks about his theology, at least in public. Uh, but in his personal writings, uh, he's very clear and direct uh, about his theological opinions. So, for instance, he takes C.S. Lewis to task in private letters uh, about certain yeah. theological positions that Lewis has taken in his writings. So, for instance, about uh, divorce or remarriage, other things like that, doctrine of prayer. Uh, so, yes, the long answer to the uh, short question, was Tolkien a theologian? Yes, he was. Um, but when we talk about analyzing Tolkien's theology, we have to do it a bit more indirectly than we would with somebody like Kevin Van Hooser, for instance, uh, because yeah. Tolkien, uh, it is said he manifests all of the things that are most deeply felt to him in the form of story. And so yeah. this book looks at all of Tolkien's nonfiction writings, literally everything that he wrote. Um, but then we also have to filter through and analyze uh, the, the fictional stuff, the Middle Earth stuff as well, and see what truths we can draw from that fiction. Yeah. So uh, that, that brings me to, uh, that's, that's super good by the way, but this, this brings me to like the, the scope of the book and its intended use. Um, uh, some people might be like, man, another book on Tolkien. And like, if you like Tolkien, you're probably not saying that because it's like, bring on all the books, but like, yeah, what, what, what is the scope? Um, what's the use of this book and, and then how is it different than the ones we already yep. have? Uh, yeah. If the making of Tolkien books, there can be no end. Right. Uh, yeah, there are plenty, plenty of really good, uh, books on, for instance, spiritual themes in the Lord of the Rings, or, you know, reading Frodo's journey devotionally, things like this. Uh, there are even some scholarly studies on uh, Tolkien's theology in Middle-earth. But there has not been at all any study of Tolkien 
uh, as a theologian himself, right? So there has not been a study of Tolkien the man and the way that his thought hangs together systematically. So that's the big difference in this book is I'm not restricting myself to just reading the Lord of the Rings or the Silmarillion and talking about the spiritual things that he inserts there. I'm also reading his letters. I'm reading his Old English and Middle English criticism. I'm reading all of his other scholarly work. Uh, I'm reading the non-Middle Earth fiction such as Leaf by Nigel. Uh, and so taking every element of Tolkien's life, plus all of the secondary literature, all of the friends and family members that spoke about the things that uh, he believed, uh, I, I'm putting all of that together, not to focus on Middle Earth, but to focus on Tolkien as a, as a man, as a scholar, as a thinker. And of course, Middle Earth plays a, a large part in that, but that is not the direct focus. Yeah, I, I really like that. And um, you anticipated a lot of a lot of like pushback and questions. Like one one question I had was like, I, you know, I, I from what I had read of Tolkien, about Tolkien, uh, he's like super staunch uh, Roman Catholic. And, you know, he was he was like, from what I hear, he was like mad at Lewis uh, for being so public since he wasn't a priest, you know, public apologist, stuff like that. So I thought, you know, you know, whatever, whatever we need to know about Tolkien, we could just get from the the, uh, the catechism, you know, of the of the Roman Catholic Church. And you address that then you're like, well, no, like there's some still some room. Can you explain that? Like why? Um, how is it that, that we can still learn something? from someone who just says like, there's my theology right there in the, in the catechism. Well, I mean, every Roman Catholic theologian would say that, right? So yeah. uh, every Roman Catholic theologian is, is under saving obedience to the church and, and is uh, going to believe what the church believes. Uh, and that didn't stop Hans Urs von Balthasar from writing like a shelf worth of stuff. Only the Lubach from doing this same sort of thing. So, um, insofar as there is a point in writing Catholic theology at all, there's a point in, in analyzing Tolkien and his own contributions. And I think what you mentioned is exactly another reason why it needs to be done. Because even if you're coming at things from the Roman Catholic side, and I have many, many Roman Catholic friends who I've, I've talked to this book about and sort of put it in front of them to say, is this an accurate portrayal of what it would have been like for him? Um, including, for instance, Karl Hoster, I, I'll name drop him. Uh, the <laughs> recent editor of uh, Nature of Middle Earth. Uh, so the fact that Tolkien did not go to seminary, he's sort of picking up his theology from his own reading, from the homilies that are being given to him at his parish church, that sort of thing. There are instances in which Tolkien would want to say, look, if I've written something that goes against um, the dogma, I need to be called out on that. And there are a few instances in the book where I sort of press him, uh, not too many, but the, the idea is the fact that Tolkien is sort of eclectic in his theological reading makes for a, a, a subject worthy of analysis, uh, not just saying, yeah. well, you know, here's the Catholic Catechism, Section 26 or whatever. whatever you want to say. Yeah, that's so good. So um, <clears throat> um, you, you touched on so many themes that I've been thinking about myself just over the years. Um, like... <clears throat> um, my my dad writes a lot of fiction himself, uh, uh, science fiction, and you know, so from that, my whole life, I've kind of been aware of like the the hero with ten thousand faces type stuff and the story arc and how like, yeah, we watched Jack Jackie Chan movie, and my dad would be like, well, Jackie Chan's got to get beat up first, and then you know, all this kind of stuff, and then uh, growing up and seeing like there's no country for old men, where like spoiler alert, the the bad guy wins, and thinking like I kind of like that movie because i've seen the the hero win so much and my dad was like no that is not how you tell a good story so just thinking of like the ethics of storytelling and um 
whether or not a a Christian, a Catholic can write a story that is based on a different world or and, and has like different motifs has always been kind of a, a question for me. And thinking of, of Tolkien writing to, I think it was Aud, I don't know how to say his name actually. I never said out loud. Auden, the the poet. It is Auden. Auden. Okay. Um, he's writing to the poet and and I think he was like defending whether or not uh, the orcs are like heretical for him to write about. Can you is that right? Did I did I hear, um, did I read that right? Yeah. So I, I can't remember if that's to WH Auden or not. But yes, that's one of the big uh, quagmires that Tolkien sorts of writes himself into is is the orcs as uh, this sort of pure evil race. And he says this theologically, this is a problem, right? So um, yeah. if if the orcs are evil as a race, that is, if they are born evil, uh, that seems to be something beyond what Melkor or Sauron could do. Uh, that seems mm. to be something that uh, has to do with the very basic level of creation and being. And so he says, then, um, how did the orcs come to be? Because with human beings, we know that it's actually God that curses them to, to be born into sin. So what, what do we do with the orcs? Uh, and the question of the orcs is, is a contested issue that changes a lot during Tolkien's lifetime. Uh, and I have a section in the book about Tolkien's changing views of the orcs and where they come from and how they fit into his doctrine of evil. But he basically says orcs are to be treated as we would any prisoner of war. They are to be given mercy if they ask for it, even if you know they're going to betray you. Uh, and and hmm. you give them basically, you know, human rights. Um, there is no instance of an orc who is good in Tolkien's writing. I don't think that's a, a sort of a book that he was interested in. Huh. Um, but if he would have lived longer, if he would have lived 10, 20 more years, he probably would have gotten around to it. You know, those were the sorts of questions that he was dealing with towards the end of his life. Hmm. Does, does, um... Does that have anything to do with like the his his like a privationist view of evil that like if something is uh if something exists it is in some degree good does does it have to do with that Very much so 100%. So I have another publication in the Journal of England Studies where uh Tom Shippey who's who's sort of the the doyen the baron the grandmaster of Tolkien studies um way way back uh in The Road to Middle-earth and author of the century he argues that Tolkien sort of has a tension between what he calls the the Boethian or Augustinian view of evil as privation, and then what he calls the Manichaean view of evil as a positive thing in itself. And he says that because mm -hmm. Tolkien is trained as a medievalist and a Catholic, he wants to uphold this Augustinian view, and yet his experiences in World War One are pulling him towards uh, the fact that evil is something that needs to be fought and not just pitied. Um, yeah. Boethius in I, th I think it's book three of the Constellation of Philosophy said that ultimately evil is something that you should pity uh, rather than uh, feel anxious about. Augustine yeah. says that, by the way. Um, so yes, he's very very conscious of this heritage. I mean, King Alfred the Great you know, of Anglo-Saxon glory and fame wrote <laughs> a commentary on Boethius, uh, which is actually more of a paraphrase because we know by comparing the manuscripts that King Alfred actually inserts quite a lot of other material commenting and expanding huh. on Boethius, and particularly in these passages. Um, so this tension that Shippey throws up or, or sort of inserts about Boethian versus Manichaean views of evil, even Shippey ultimately says Tolkien comes down on the, the Augustinian Boethian side. But um, it's it's been a huge distraction in terms of writing about Tolkien's theology of evil and writing about how Tolkien deals with evil. Everybody feels like they've got to address this issue. And in my hmm. article, I say that it's, it's a false problem. 
and we need to start to broach new uh, modes of reading Tolkien's um, writing about evil because he's very clearly an Augustinian. I mean, he says it in so many words. He even has Frodo say it and Elrond say it, right? Nothing is evil in the beginning. Even Sauron was not so. Uh, so yeah. he's very strongly in that camp. Yeah. Now that's, yeah, that's super huge. Um, <clears throat> sorry, just sticking on that. Do you, does the, does the, the, uh, evil is to be pitied. Does that come from like, a a Platonist understanding of evil being like ignorance? Yes. Um, okay. uh, Platonist or Neoplatonist. So when Boethius is talking about it, lady philosophy is sort of in his prison cell and telling him why, uh, it's not the case that evil just gets away with everything. That's one of Boethius's big complaints at the beginning is that he's in this cell and all of the evil people are getting away with these false accusations and how then is the world just? And she says, well, actually, uh, good people are the only people that achieve their desires because they achieve goodness and goodness is happiness and that's the thing that everybody wants. Uh, wicked people, yeah. by definition, do not have goodness and therefore do not have happiness. And it's the most important thing to have and they don't have it. Uh, so mm. what a bunch of pathetic losers they are uh, that <laughs> rather than being jealous of Theodoric or these other people that have put you in prison, Boethius, you need to, um, more than that, you need to pity them because they're the ones that are losing out on the ultimate prize. Yeah. That's tough when you're in it. Um, but yeah, I, but, but Tolkien would have so known good. that as well. I mean, pity, he'll, he'll capitalize it. Pity is one of his central themes. Um, he defines pity more as, as Christian virtue of charity, of agape love, rather than pity of just sort of like uh, looking down on somebody that's beneath you. Yeah. Oh, man. Now, we're, this is all sorts of implications for like loving your enemy and stuff, which is very Christian and very tough. Yeah, yep, there's a golem. That's story. awesome. <laughs> yeah. Um, man, okay. Uh I picked up on this, um, uh, like, like myth making as a clue to the true myth. And, um, I want to ask about that because I think maybe, uh, uh, Lewis was a little bit louder with that, like myth became fact type stuff. Um, uh, but I think he got that from Tolkien. Yes, he did. Um, okay. a lot of Lewis's trademark ideas, he kind of snuck from Tolkien by the way. Um, yeah. So yeah. in Tolkien's poem, Mythopoeia, which is one of my favorite poems of all time, um, it's the, the poem that he writes after the fact um, on the, the famous Addison's Walk between uh, Hugo Dyson and C.S. Lewis and, and Tolkien, sort of bringing to Lewis to the, the burgeoning conclusion that Christianity is the true myth. Um, mm. And so in, that is in that poem. Tolkien says this is, this is the way that we ought to look at things, that God redeems the corrupt making creatures, human beings. Right? We are intrinsically designed to be makers because we are in the image of the maker. He redeems the makers with a made thing, with a story. Um, yeah. Yeah. So that the idea of myth becoming fact is something that's central to, to Tolkien's understanding of the story of redemption. And uh, yes, you are right. Lewis is, is borrowing that. We know Tolkien yeah. did it first because Lewis wasn't even a Christian when Tolkien said it. Yeah, that's so good. Yeah, that's, and that's uh, mytho, is it mythopoesis or mythopoeia? Mythopoeia is mythopoeia. the name of the poem. Mythopoesis is yeah. the name of the activity. You can say that. Yeah. Yeah, I, that's um, yeah, that's a great poem. I, uh, yeah, like, I don't know. I think maybe Tim Keller would talk about it a lot. So I'm like, I need to go read this. And then I was like, wait a second, Tolkien's been saying this, and like, um, how 
um, in the book, you talk about how um, Tolkien saw myth making as a clue towards like the the true myth. Yeah. Um, can you help us out? Like, how how is myth making an exam uh, evidence that there is a myth that is true, like the great true myth that became fact or whatever? So I want to start a few steps back before I answer that question. We got to understand the context of yeah. writing out of. So um, he he is going to school. He's being educated. Um, with the the leftovers of the scholarship of Victorian England, you know, Tolkien is an Edwardian, but he's in the midst of the myth wars uh, of uh, all of these people who are uh, taking part in this growing trend of anthropological cultural studies. You know, the Brothers Grimm, all of these people, they're finding these national epics, they're studying myth and the origins of myth, uh, and so there there are a lot of possible interpretations of what myth is. Is it um, mm. the record of ancient rituals and sacrifices? Is it just a sort of um, a, a kernel of fact, which then gets blown up over time? Is it a way of talking about uh, the seasons? There, there's all sorts of different theories that get propounded at this time. And, and one of them was that mythology is a disease of language. That is the phrase that, that gets used and that Tolkien combats in on fairy stories. Um, and he says, no, far from being a disease of language, some sort of excrescence that language throws off as our words change. He says, mythology is at the heart of language. Like that is, that is how language functions. Uh, and we hmm. see this get picked up in a much different way by somebody like, you know, Paul Ricoeur, who talks about the, the centrality of symbol and metaphor in, in our everyday speech. Um, you had to mention record because yeah, well, you studied with Van Hooser. Yep. Yeah. So um, <laughs> the, when Tolkien starts to say that myth is a window into reality, he is reacting against a lot of people that want to sideline myth and say that it's not worth looking at, or if it's worth looking at, it's only worth looking at as a, a window into the human soul. And Tolkien says, no, yeah. myth is a window into uh, something outside of ourselves. And he says the very fact that there's this huge, um, concerted effort throughout all times and places and cultures to make these sorts of stories ought to indicate to us that it is a part of what it means to be human. Uh, and so for Tolkien, he says, even if Thor and Odin and all of these other uh, myths were made up by people, the very yeah. fact that we give the thunderstorm this particular personality needs to be explained. Uh, and so hmm. he actually flips the table on people and says, it, this demands uh, an answer. This demands a, an explanation somehow. And for him, it's in the image of God, that, that God uh, has made us to be sub-creators. He has created us to rule over the world and to create stories in the way that God has created his story. Uh, and myth is the uh, exemplar of that. That's so good. Um... So that, that, that's such a good segue into like sub-creation. Um, I, I love the language, by the way, and, and Tolkien, Tolkien messed with me so bad when I read, um, I don't know if it's Tree and Leaf or it's like a collection of his essays. And I, and I learned about sub-creation and I was like, well, maybe we can create something whole cloth. And then like, I, I couldn't do it. And maybe someone still can, but I can't. Like we still take pre-existing ideas and I don't think we can ever make anything ex nihilo the way God did. Um, but when it comes to our own mythopoesis, um, Mike, are there other ethics to it? Like, yes. um, there are. Like, 
I think of like DC so comics. Tolkien will uh, say uh, I know that, that you love like nerdy stuff. I'm I'm finding out that I'm like a nerd. Do you read DC at all? Do you? I'm sorry. Yeah. Tolkien will say that there are limits to the to the author's imagination, but only in certain respects. So, for one thing, the the law of non contradiction okay. needs to be upheld. Um, so your story needs to make sense; it needs to hold together. Um, and then, if you want to place the story within this world, as he does with Middle Earth, uh, he says that Middle oh, Earth yeah. is yeah. our world in a, a sort of fictionalized prehistoric past. And so, if he's going to make that decision, then he's going to mm. bind himself. You know, when reformed person might even say he's going to covenant himself to um, <laughs> follow a certain set of rules. Like the, the origin of humanity, for instance, needs to be consonant with the biblical origin of humanity, because we know that's actually how it happened in this world. Right? Middle earth may be a pre-Christian realm, but it's not a pre-creational realm, right? There's this, this time period between the creation of the universe and, you know, the call of Abraham. That's when all this stuff is taking place. Uh, and so if you're setting your story there, then you are binding yourself to uh, follow the rules that are set out that kind of keep you in the framework of the biblical picture there. Um, Tolkien is very influenced by other people that have come before him, like George MacDonald um, and, and William Morris and John Ruskin and other uh, English romantics. And uh, they're basically going to say also that you can make the, the sun green and you can make grass blue and you can do whatever else. But the thing that doesn't change, whether in this world or in fairyland, is the moral law. The moral law always stays the same. Um, hmm. So the instantiation of the moral law, right, the, the, that gap between principle and application is always what gets us into trouble in ethics, right? Everybody agrees about the principle. It's just, what do I do in this particular instance? Um, hmm. That might have different uh, different implications in different worlds, but the moral law as such remains the same and it's universal because uh, we are still sub-creators and, and the moral law of God is part of God's essence. And so that's the same in every possible world. Um, creation, the laws of creation can change, but the moral law reflects the essence of God and therefore in every possible world it is identical. Nice. Okay, okay. Um, yeah, I, I think we're, I got, we're cut off here. Um, when I was asking the question earlier, but did, did you hear what, did you hear me ask about DC comics no, at all? But I want to. Okay. Okay. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm discovering that I'm like a, a huge nerd and I didn't know this until like recently, but I, I love all sorts of nerdy stuff, but including DC comics, Marvel comics. And so like this whole year, I've just been like getting into it. Do you, do you read DC at all? Oh, yeah. I've got to give you a reading list. If we're, if we're going there, I got to give you a reading list to, to, uh, to get caught up. Yes, I'm, I'm very much more in favor of DC. Uh, I do like Marvel, but uh, I like DC more. And uh, it's primarily for this reason, in that um, look at the history of comic books, um, DC or the, the brands that DC bought, they come first, they're older. And they're closer to the genesis of, okay. of the need for comic books, which is wishful comic books are the American mythology. And uh, so all of the heroes that DC has in their sort of wheelhouse, they are these mythical figures. When Marvel comes around in the 60s, Marvel is doing something very different and they want to humanize the, their characters. Uh, they want to make their characters relevant and uh, relatable. And so Marvel is the is the Boltman of the comic world and they're looking to demythologize some of these <laughs> mythical figures. Um, so that's why I like DC more because I feel like that's what comics is for. You know, when, when you see mm. Batman and Superman on the screen in a Zack Snyder movie, you don't have to have had like three or four setup movies in order to understand who they are. Like we know who they are. They're, they are Hercules. They are Achilles. They are Zeus. Like they, 
their their meaning is within themselves. We all know who these characters are. Um, yeah. And you can just feel more free to to play with them and to play with the ideas. Yeah. Well, okay. So, so jumping in on that, um, I've been looking at like, um, DC's got this problem of rebooting and, and their, uh, their crisis of crises events and they keep having them over and over and, and they keep, you know, retconning the origin of the universe. Is it like, would Tolkien think that it's wrong for them to have like this great darkness, uh, and, and this, this great light where it's like maybe Manichaean or something like yeah. Could could you tell us he he would say that that you, you shouldn't story. do that? Yeah, I think he would have a big problem with that. It would irritate. Okay, me. I, know, I know it irritates me. Um, in the the rebooting, I think that he wouldn't necessarily say that it's immoral. I think he would say it's lazy storytelling or that it's it's cheap. But what interests me about DC and Marvel and all of these reboots is that they're not actually reboots, right? Because within yeah. the universes themselves, within the fictional universes, there these are different events that are happening. And you'll always have these yeah. holdover characters that remember the way that it was before. <laughs> so in a sense, DC yeah. has never rebooted. They have never just like made a, a break and said, we're going to start over with new stuff. It's always right. an in-universe explanation for why things are now different, uh, which yeah. is you know, a fascinating philosophical issue when you think about it. I mean, it makes me think of like HUD Hudson and Hypertime and that sort of stuff. But um, yeah. Yeah, I, I don't think that he would find it a moral problem so much as a, a mechanical sort of storytelling problem. Well, so what I'm thinking of is like, um, I think Earth Prime, no, not Earth Prime, Earth, wherever Superboy Prime is from, yeah. that's that's our Earth. Yeah. And so and like our anymore, Earth right? Because now it's separated from our Earth because we're making stories about it. Yeah. But if we if we do if you did want to be like self-referential in that be like okay our earth is included in the DC omniverse would would Tolkien have a problem because then you're telling like a different creation story and there's not just one oh I guess it depends on if DC has a, a god above all or the one above all that is god uh, but do you see what I'm getting at like yeah, the ethics of the, so the theology have, there? they have the source I actually have an essay on this um Oh, nice. So they have the source, and the source is supposed to be the the Yahwistic God, which is why it's never um, necessarily in the stories, and it's never described so much. It's supposed to be this sort of aniconic figure um, to avoid. It's not Jack Kirby. Alienating? No, that's Marvel. Uh, yeah, in Marvel, it's Jack Kirby. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, I I think that for Tolkien. If we're setting it in this world, then it needs to be consonant with the biblical picture of the world in order to be okay. correct. And I think DC has introduced enough um, aberrations from the, the biblical worldview uh, to say that this is probably not a good idea. Um, but I think Tolkien is also like a reasonable enough person to realize that not everybody is going to agree with the Christian picture of things. And that um, right. if you're if you're Marv Wolfman or whoever that um, is writing these stories, then I mean, what else do we expect them to say? Would he not read, would he suggest like not reading it though? Mm. No, I mean, Tolkien read all sorts of things. He, he read a lot of things that he uh, disagreed with very much. Uh, so I, I, Tolkien would not have adopted the, the pagan mythology of the, the Eddas, but we know that he read and enjoyed them very much. Um, okay. In his story of Colervo, which is a, uh, precursor to the story of Turin Turambar. Um, Kalervo is a hero from the Finnish Kalevala, and Tolkien sort of redid that bit of the story for himself. Uh, we find that he's actually theologically disgusted with some of the things that go on in that story. Um, hmm. the, there's a, 
a sort of a shadowy typology of Mary that goes on in this story. And, and Tolkien says mm. this is, you know, far below and, and degraded from what the real Mary ought to be. And yet he writes a whole book retelling the story. So, no, I, I think that Tolkien was very widely read. And we'll see, you know, in Holly Ordway's book, Tolkien's Modern Reading, she demonstrates there's a lot of a lot of things that Tolkien read that even though he disagrees with it, he can still take enjoyment from it as a story. And, and for him, I think that's primary. Okay. So when it comes to um, Middle Earth, and uh, because it is uh, a pre, uh, pre-incarnate, pre-redemption world like ours or, or in place of a mythical ours in mythology. There we go. Something like that. Um, like is, is, uh, Eru, Eru Iluvatar, like, is that, is, is, is that God? Like, is it relevantly similar? It is like to Yahweh. Yeah. He's Yahweh. Okay. Yeah. So he's the, he's the, the narrative form that Yahweh takes. I mean, obviously philosophically, he's not identical to Yahweh because Yahweh is real and this is a fictional story, but, he is meant to be the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Yes. He's not a okay. stand-in or a um, dude. He's the same entity. Gotcha. Okay. Um, so what about the, the, the Trinity? Like um, so some, some uh, theologians will look at uh, Yahweh's use of let us make man in our image. And they'll say like, there's, there's some, some room there for the Trinity. Others will say, no, it's the Royal we, and the Jews would have never interpreted it that way. Does Tolkien do anything like that with, uh, Iluvatar hinting at like being able to be a Trinitarian? Um, type guy? yeah, he, yes, he does. So in the, the conversation, Athrobeth, Finrod, Andreth, or in the, uh, English version, the conversation of Finrod and Andreth, it's in one of the volumes of the history of middle earth, which is the the posthumous manuscripts that Christopher Tolkien, his son, uh, released. Uh, there is a conversation where Finrod talks about this. Finrod, by mm. the way, if, if we've been watching Rings of Power, is Galadriel's brother that gets killed and that makes her so angry. Um, the same guy. Uh, also, the ring that Aragorn wears in Lord of the Rings, the, the sort of silver one with the green stone and the serpents, that's Finrod's ring that has been passed down through Aragorn's family. Snap. Okay. Um, so this guy Finrod, he he he's at the edges of a lot of different stories, but uh, he's talking to this human woman, and in their conversation, mostly it's about the fall and mortality. But uh, there, Finrod says that if if Morgoth is to be conquered, then Eru must come into Middle Earth himself in order to do it. Uh, and mm. yet, in doing so, he would also remain as he is, as the author outside of the story. And so, in this case, we we can sort of see. There are distinctions. Tolkien says in his commentary on the story, there are distinctions within the one while he yet remains the one. Nice. Um, the, the secret fire, which is in the, the Ainulindale at the beginning of the Silmarillion. Uh, there's a section in my book where I talk about whether the, the secret fire is uh, to be the Holy Spirit or not. Most people yeah. will take it to be the Holy Spirit in some sense. Um, the, the sun does not get talked about within the stories because uh, it is not yet time for the sun to be revealed. Uh, so yeah. the fullest of time is not yet. Uh, but there, there are enough hints within Middle-earth that, yes, Eru is Trinitarian, or at least there are mysteries to Eru's being that not everybody knows about yet. Yeah, that's so good. Um, <clears throat> okay, so here's one that, that I actually don't know which came first. Uh, it was probably Tolkien's. But uh, Lewis and Tolkien both, uh, in depicting the the creation of their fictional worlds, depict the world being sung into existence. 
Do you know if, uh, I mean, was that Tolkien's first? Yeah, so Tolkien wrote Einu Lindale in uh, 1917, 1918. So he's writing that as he's in the trenches, some of it. And then while he's convalescing after getting getting trench fever and getting pulled back. Um, And then obviously Narnia doesn't come out until um, the 40s, 50s. Um, So quite a lot longer uh, before Lewis is doing it. I told you. Um, (laughs) So they're both talking about singing. Uh, so the the singing element is yes, Tolkien did it first, um, but it is a, I would say, a bit of creative license on his part in order to uh, illustrate some of the principles. We know music was very important to him. Um, mm-hmm. We know music was particularly very important to his wife Edith, who would have been the primary audience at the time. Uh, they had just been married, so the the concept of uh, harmony and dissonance and and um, all of that sort of thing. I think there's there's reasons for that. Um, it sounds pretty too. Uh, if yeah. you're going to if you're going to involve the angels in creation, uh, then you have to give them something to do. And so, yeah. um, rather than just have God speak it and it be this sort of monologic activity, if you're going to have the angels participate as sub creators, then they have to have roles, obviously. And I think putting them into a choir or a symphony is one easy way to do that. Yeah. Um, I asked uh, uh, Chris Wiley, Sierra Wiley, about this, and he he brought up the Music Man and was like, "Hey, uh, singing is just sustained talking," and uh, I, I thought that was pretty funny. And he was he was saying like it, it doesn't have to be just one or the other kind of thing. Like, well, I'm, what do you make of that? Like, could could God have created through singing? Could you know in the beginning God said let there be like could have could there been like some resonance or like harmonics? Well, or something? I mean. Everything we know uh, says that our speech about God is analogical, right? There are similarities and there are differences. Um, We know that God accommodates himself to human modes of speech, right? God doesn't have vocal cords, at least not outside of his human nature in Christ. And so um, whatever we say in Genesis 1, we have to interpret um, somewhat loosely because um, of the nature of of what we're dealing with. depending on who you side with and how poetic you want to read poetically, you want to read Genesis one through three. You know, what is the difference between poetry and song really? Uh, So Mm. yeah, I guess I would say always possible. Uh, Yeah. Now this is one of those areas actually where Tolkien sort of departs from Catholic tradition. So for, for Aquinas, for instance, Aquinas specifically denies a role to angels uh, in creation. He said angels did not do anything. Whereas for Tolkien, they sort of, fill out quite a lot. Um, so he, he takes a little bit of independence uh, in, in this story in particular. What's interesting is this is one of the first thing he's first things he writes in middle earth. And it's also basically unchanged until his death. So he writes this story. He tinkers with so much and so much else of his writing, but this particular story kind of stays stable through hmm. his entire life more or less. Yeah, that's that is fascinating. I, I like that in the book you you showed, or you, you talked about a lot of the the things that have changed. Um, but yeah, that's so fascinating that this one didn't change. So I, I wonder, like, this is taking place in Middle Earth. Middle Earth is like a mythical depiction of Earth prior to the incarnation. So like, I wonder how he's okay with saying that like angels uh, participated in creation. What, what do you make of that? Um, well, in my chapter on angels in the book, before I get too far into it, I realized that 
got to speak to my audience and assuage their difficulties. So I, I do a little bit of biblical theology at the beginning of the chapter. And I say that actually Tolkien's version of angels is a lot closer to the Old Testament context than our modern sort of 21st century Protestant view of angels, which has them really not doing much of anything. Uh, I mean, God asked Job, where were you when the morning stars sang together at, at, at creation, right? Yeah. We know stars means angels in sort of biblical symbolism. They're, they're seen together at the beginning of creation and praising God for the thing that he has um, laid out. Uh, there are many instances of, of angels being said to be uh, present at the dawn of time. Um, we know that angels are his ministers and uh, his servants and his messengers. And so uh, I think Tolkien has enough leeway in the text to say that angels could have participated in uh, the shaping of the cosmos, right? That He says the Velar yeah. are most active in the sort of cosmic timescales. Um, right? okay. Before the planet gets formed, they are the ones that are sort of spreading out the nebulae and lighting the stars and um they're there you know moving the tectonic plates so that the earth gets shaped correctly um so the fact that god alone is the source of being uh tolkien says that very explicitly like morgoth goes looking for things that he can make on his own it says he, he was looking for the secret fire but he found it not for it is with Ilúvatar. um yeah. god alone is the one that actually gives life and existence um, and so the angels are actually just shaping pre-existing things in accordance with God's plan for them. So God says, this is what I want. This is the music that I want you to perform. Uh, and within that, you are free to um, make your own interpretations of that. I mean, if you think about music, uh, there might be one Rachmaninoff piece and three different piano players will play the same piece and you'll get a different result based on that person's personality, right? So they're following, yeah. the, they're following the same notes but their personality is expressed in that. And I think that's what Tolkien is doing with the angels. God gives them the sheet music to play and they follow his commands after he's given it being. Um, but it says each of them is able to recognize their own handiwork. So I, I think that he gives the creation proper still fully over to God and the angels remain the minister. So I think he he's, stays within the bounds of orthodoxy there. Okay. How about, um, um, I, I believe it was Melkor who was singing like this discordant, uh, uh, you know, music into the, the initial music. And then uh, Eru is like, even that was according to my, my plan. Um, I mean, what do you, what do you make of that with like the devil and, uh, or Satan and, uh, and, and also does, does Tolkien give an initial um, explanation for Malcor's fall? He does not. Um, okay. Bible we might note. Uh so he says that Melkor has started becoming a little weird because he goes often alone into the void looking for the secret fire. Um, that's not necessarily said to be a sin yet, but we do know that he is um, isolating himself from the rest of the angelic community and that he is maybe considering breaking away, um, depending on your doctrine of the will. Is, is that a sin or not? If your will hasn't fully ascended to it, like he leaves that open. He says like, this is as close as we can come to sort of figuring out why he did this and the other angels didn't. Um, yeah. But yeah, the other issue is that God is working all of that into his plan. And he says, actually the, the worst things that Melkor has done actually end up turning into or, or coming out of that is some of the best things. 
Uh, And I think that's just such a powerful passage in the Silmarillion where he talks about how God's subverting all of the devil's designs. Um, I mean, speaking of Tim Keller earlier, I I heard him preach at one point in Memphis and the line always stuck with me as he said, how many people lost their faith there at the foot of the cross where the greatest thing that God ever did for humanity was happening in front of them. Right. Um, So the, the idea of providence is a big one for Tolkien and you Mm -hmm. sort of have to stitch it together from several different areas. But the idea of how much God knows of the future and how much God is in control of it is not one that Tolkien ever explicitly says other than like the very high level, everything is under the hand of God and everything will work out according to God's design. But like mechanically, granularly, how much control he has, that's a topic of discussion and an extended passage in the book where I try to harmonize those things. Yeah. And I think the... Honestly, at some points, Tolkien almost sounds like a, a Molinist, um, but I doubt that he would have been familiar with with Molinism based on his reading yeah. and his interests. Um, and some places he sounds very much like a, a Calvinist or, you know, really a Thomist because that's basically the same thing on this score. Um, yeah. And then in other places, he's very much in line with traditional Catholic doctrine, which emphasizes the, the freedom of the will of, of human creatures. So in the book, I try to do some work to sort of tease these out rather than I think what a lot of people would say, Oh, he just contradicts himself on Providence. I think, well, maybe there's more to be said there. Um, yeah, but it, it is. Yeah. That's a complex issue. In his well, when, when it, um, I know <clears throat> some people will think we'll talk about Lord of the Rings and be like, look, the, this is like deism. You know, they, there's the, you don't see like specific uh, instances of uh, Eru Iluvatar like interceding or, or um, intervening or anything like that. Uh, what, what do you make of that charge? Like is, is Tolkien's God a deistic God? Absolutely not. Um, hmm. I think if you read the Lord of the Rings carefully, even within the Lord of the Rings, which is considered to be, you know, the most godless of Tolkien's book, it's very clear that God is doing yeah. things. Um, so hmm. for instance, the Council of Elrond is not, is never called they all just show up for their own reasons at the same time and in the huh. same place. And they're like, Hey, we ought to do something about this ring. Um, yeah. Just there. Um, Gandalf will say very specifically, there was a power at work and it was not the power of the enemy. Um, hmm. Now, some people can say this is, this is the Valar doing things, but from what we know about the Valar and other writings, they are always doing things under the authority of, and with the permission of, God himself. So it's, you know, six or half dozen on that score. Yeah. It's the Valar or God himself directly. Um, yeah, there's plenty of instances, even within the Lord of the Rings, where providence is active, um, even in the climax, right? So the, the fact that Gollum is still there to, to bite off Frodo's finger and fall into the lava is a result of a lot of prior decisions being made by human beings, including Frodo and Sam and Gandalf and Thranduil and Aragorn and all of these people who are um, agents of providence uh, that are sometimes inspired directly by God uh, with new thoughts. Like we see Sam many times uh, being inspired to say something or or an instance where Frodo would say, it seemed like somebody else was speaking out of his mouth. Uh, yeah. There's all sorts of stuff thrown into to Lord of the Rings. And when you expand it outside of Lord of the Rings, it becomes even more clear. So in this, the Silmarillion that we're talking about, God says that he has not showed the end of the story to anybody, um, that he re- retains the right to intervene at any point that he wants and does. Um, 
the fall of Numenor, right? Now more people know what Numenor is now the Rings of Power has come out, right? When the Numenor yeah. collapses into the earth, that is a direct act of God. Uh, the Valar do not have the authority to change the shape of the world. So they actually lay down their power and God does that himself. Hmm. Um, but especially at the level of providence, God is doing things all the time. But even above that, actual direct miraculous action, God is also doing that uh, in several instances in the Lord of the Rings. And and so in the chapter on revelation that I have in the book, I go through all yeah. of these miraculous forms of revelation, dreams and prophecies and visions and all sorts of things that are coming from the powers above there is there is really very little justification i mean lord of the rings came out in 1973 maybe for somebody that had not been uh, reading terribly closely we could say that god is a deist but goodness gracious it's 50 years since then there's there's no reason to make that argument anymore it's it's untenable so awesome i love that um uh Okay, I, I got two more for you. So um, you, you mentioned in the book about uh, foreknowledge, you know, and, and omniscience and, and how it is that the God of Middle Earth knows things. And, you know, whether it's like from the completed story or um, or what, what have you. And it has to do with like the creation as well, that, that it seems like the creator didn't just create time and space, but also, you know, that's just like the furniture of the story, but also the, the plot. Mm -hmm. And, and, uh, can you, can you flesh that out for us more? Like yeah. did, did, did talk? Yeah. How did, what was talk? How does that represent Tolkien's view of foreknowledge and omniscience? Um, as well? So I think as a, the only window that we have into Tolkien's views on this really in, in an extended way are in, uh, one of his sort of, uh, pseudo historical texts, right? Like uh, the appendices, like where he sort of keeps maintaining this illusion that these are documents that he found. And um, he says, well, this is what the elves think. And then he'll say a bunch of philosophy. Um, so one of the things, the, the most important document that we have is a document called Fate and Free Will, which Carl Hostetter published many years ago in, um, in the Tolkien Studies Journal. And that's also in the, the Nature of Middle Earth book that just came out that he edits. Uh, this is where a lot of that stuff comes from. And okay. It's couched very significantly as a bit of elvish philosophy, uh, which we know is not necessarily one-to-one -one with what does Tolkien himself think about the real world. So that's right. the caveat that we have to start with at the beginning. And I note that in the book, that there are these danger points where we can go too glibly from one to the other. Yeah. Um, in that document, it seems as if Eru's foreknowledge is limited by the free will of his creatures. Mm -hmm. Um. I don't think that we necessarily have to go that entire way. Um, and I think in all of the writings that we have on Providence in Middle Earth in particular, it's couched in this sort of uh, conscious fact that this is a story that Tolkien is writing. And so the idea of narrative and of narrativity is important in all of Tolkien's Middle Earth stuff because that's very close to the heart of what he's doing. Uh, it's this doctrine of subcreation and when it is valid and when it's not valid. So outside of that, how important is narrative to Tolkien's idea of providence? We don't know. We only know what's been published. But based on what's been published, I think it's it's incredibly important. And in fact, it's inspired a lot of my own work outside of this book. Um, I, like, uh, I'm, I'm trying to tease out this idea of God as author, uh, God as author of the plot. Uh, I have another uh, essay that was published in Zygon, in the, the Science and Theology Journal Zygon, about Tolkien and the plot of evolution. I talk mm. about evolution. Um, and the, the narrative of history 
Um, so think about all the questions that this raises. I mean, think about if we talk about God as author standing outside the text, um, think about what that would mean for how we articulate a doctrine of omniscience and omnipresence. Um, you know, how is God present in his story? Well, in the same way that Tolkien is present in his story. He's doing everything, but his name never shows up on the, on the cover page. Um, Frodo decides that he's going to take the ring to Mordor. Why does he decide it based on the, the character and the previous decisions that, that he has um, laid out in his life? Nobody's forcing him to do it. It's a freely uh, undertaken quest. And yet Tolkien is also doing that on a separate level of being. Right. Um, so the idea of authorship, I think, is a, is a huge lever into moving some of these big theological concepts like divine presence, divine hiddenness, divine action, uh, even theodicy. Tolkien will talk about yes. theodicy in this respect. Like um, Frodo and Sam have that, this famous talk about looking back on it, it will seem very different. And people will want to hear this story of Frodo and the Nine Fingers of the Ring of Doom, even though Frodo and Sam would rather be anywhere else. Um, yeah. So if we think about creation as having a plot, uh, for instance, we can think about the creation having a conflict. If Lord of the Rings didn't have a conflict, we wouldn't be reading Lord of the Rings. It would not have the beauty of the story that it does. Um, if creation did not have an antagonist to its plot, namely the devil, then a lot of the conflict could not move forward. So there are all sorts of fascinating issues that, that arise when we talk about God as the author and human beings as sub-creators. And I think Tolkien puts his finger on something that for our um, post-Platonist world that has denied this sort of chain of being um, really helps us to understand uh, all of these doctrines that for a lot of the church fathers and, and even the medievals, it was sort of a sine qua non, like it's, t it's taken for granted the way that they understand this stuff. Yeah, man. You hit on so many things that I love. I, I wrote my master's thesis at Ted's under Van Hoos, and uh, I wanted to write on his particular view of the authorial analogy. Uh, and I wanted to write about God and time. And uh, he's like, well, dude, they're going to ask you about uh, evil. And, you know, like, what the heck? If God's the author of evil, that's a big problem. So then he made me write on uh, evil. And uh, it was awesome, dude. It's it's so it's so helpful to think through the authorial analogy. And, uh, yeah, even, even thinking through, like, hey, look, God made a good story. Uh, it would be a worse story without the devil because we wouldn't have uh, redemption and we wouldn't see God as long suffering and as loving his enemies and patient and all these other, all the, the, the different attributes of God that we see through like the prism of this story. We wouldn't know God as well if he had not allowed Satan to fall and, and all that. And stuff. think about this as well. If we understand God to be the author outside the text, it's on a different level of being than his characters. I mean, think about some of the stuff that happens in, in the Silmarillion, right? The, the dragons get released and there's these hills of corpses of elves that have been tortured and slaughtered. But Tolkien's mm -hmm. not morally wicked for writing that. Right. Right. So Morgoth is morally wicked for doing that within the story. But the author outside of the story isn't really morally blameworthy for allowing that or, or writing that to happen. Now, I can think of stories where authors are morally wicked, and th that does manifest in the sort of things that they have happen in their stories. Um, yeah. You know, certain scenes I can think of very easily would, would demonstrate a, a sort of depravity on the, in the mind of the author. But um, it's, not a necessary, it's not a necessary implication. And so when we think about God allowing evil, um, e even sometimes very actively, like he does with Job, um, 
God's moral status because he is of a higher level of being than human creatures uh, doesn't seem to be affected in the way that it does for creatures that are on the same level of being. Yeah. Yeah. James Anderson has a great uh, essay in Calvinism and the problem of evil using this. And, he, and I think he even talks about Tolkien. Uh, it's, it's, it's super helpful for, for thinking like, Hey, look, um, how crazy would it be to, to go and try and arrest Tolkien for the murder of Deagle by Smeagol? Like, how dare you do that? And it's like, no, it's a different level of being. It doesn't really make sense. I could, I could also imagine someone saying, well, if you can imagine someone being like, uh, culpable for writing a bad plot here in this level of reality, then God, you know, superintended that whole thing. So then it, it passes on to God and it's like, well, I, this is where I think skeptical theism comes in and go, look, you'd have to be God in order to know the full plot and be able to say that God doesn't have a morally sufficient reason for allowing that evil that we experience. We've seen that he has taken the worst evil at the cross and brought about the greatest good. So we're justified in believing that he could do that with any lesser evil that we experience. And we have to be God to know that the plot doesn't include a greater good. So I love it, man. It's now now we get into the question of nested fictions, right? So if, uh, yeah. So Frodo is writing stories inside the Lord of the Rings. Uh, what level of reality do those things have? Anyway, there's right. there's a lot to be said about that. Yeah, yeah, that's so super awesome. Um, <clears throat> well, dude, this this has been huge. Uh, the book is Tolkien Dogmatics: Theology Through Mythology with the Maker of Middle Earth. Um, there's a lot of good theology that you will learn by reading this book. Uh, so I'm really excited about that, and you'll you'll get a ton, like even just the notes, the notes are huge. Like yeah, you, don't, if you read don't, through the notes. Uh, leave out the footnotes. There, there's a lot of really good stuff in the footnotes, y'all. End notes. Whatever yeah. It is. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I have to forgive you that they're end notes and not footnotes, I did, but that was not I, I can. That was not <laughs> I think the fact is That's awesome. I'll, I'll give a plug for Lexum here. So, um, Lexum publishes an ebook. They also have it as a Logos Bible software resource. And I think there's just endnotes. I know for me, like when I'm reading um, digitally, endnotes is, is a lot easier to go through when I'm doing digital resources than having footnotes at the bottom of the page that then okay. um, have to be navigated. But yes, a lot of good stuff in the footnotes, including a lot of um, somewhat important stuff that isn't directly related to Tolkien and theology. But yeah, that, that one of the reasons I wrote the book is... Uh, halfway to defend Tolkien from these charges of people that try to say that Tolkien's Christianity is not an important element in his life, uh, partly so that it can be a sort of one-stop shop for people to do their own further research. Because I mean, it's it's pretty exhaustive. Like all of the all of the stuff that yeah. I reference in there, that's that's it. You can go and you can read it yourself and and do your own research from there. Um, use it as a, a classroom text. But uh, part of it is it's it's a systematic theology, right? It goes through most of the points. Yeah. Uh, and if you're, if this is your avenue into a reading a systematic theology for the first time, then uh, th that's something that the book can do for you as well. Yeah, man, I love that. I love the idea of um, of luring people into philosophy and theology through popular works, I guess. And and I I caught that as I'm reading. I'm like, dude, he's doing it. He's doing what I want to do. That's so good. Yeah, appreciate that. Well, cool. um, well, Austin. Yeah, sorry, man. I'm. It's it's. Uh, I think my internet is is being stupid right now, but. Um, if people wanted to, uh, so go and grab the book, folks. You can find that. Uh, I'll put an affiliate link in the description or just go to Amazon and find it at Tolkien Dogmatics. If someone wanted to get more of your thoughts, where can they find you at? Hmm. Uh, so my writings are published uh, in various different venues. 
Um, I have a, a book on H.P. Lovecraft and theology, which my chapter in that book uh, that I edited also includes some, some thoughts on Tolkien. That's a, uh, available from Lexington Press. Uh, and then uh, I have a few other uh, articles on Tolkien that have appeared in other scholarly journals from Walking Tree Press and other things. Um, uh, I think it's all available on, on Google Scholar, or at least the citations are. Uh, I am not on Twitter yet, but uh, coming back from ETS, everybody's sort of telling me that I kind of need to be on Twitter now. So um, maybe, maybe in the future, uh, yeah. we shall see. But uh, so far, I'm trying to let the work speak for itself at this point. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, I, I highly recommend it, folks. Go and grab that book. Uh, this has been Parker's Pensies, and as always, all glory to God.